Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Viet Tan Nguyen. He is the Errol Arnold Chair of English and American Studies at the University of Southern California, and he is the recipient of fellowships from the Guggenheim and MacArthur Foundations. His first novel, The Sympathizer, was the winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, the Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction, and the Edgar Award for the Best First Novel. His new novel, The Committed, is published by our friends at Grove Press, an imprint of Grove Atlantic. Viet, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Jason. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here. And your novels are fantastic. You don't need me to tell you that. Plenty of folks have told you already. Uh, One of the many issues that these novels, The Sympathizer and The Committed, are grappling with, and listeners, as an aside, if you are unfamiliar with these books, they are part of the same story, The Committed being a continuation of the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, The Sympathizer. But one of the issues these novels are grappling with, more so The Sympathizer, is what it means to be an American and what it means to be from another country, Vietnam specifically, and try to integrate oneself into American society. You were recently interviewed about the mass shooting of Americans in Georgia. And here we are a couple of weeks later, and there's been another mass shooting in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, Just last night, I believe another mass shooting was stopped in Atlanta because someone was in the bathroom while a guy was uh, strapping up, basically. If the past is any indicator of the present, by the time this episode airs in a few weeks, there will be another one or two mass shootings. With this in mind, as we sit here in 2021, what does it mean to be an American? And what do you think is the experience of someone who is trying to integrate himself, herself, or themselves into American society? Well, it's a huge question, Jason, but thanks for asking it. Um, Let me look specifically at, at, you know, the Atlanta killings, which, you know, killed eight people, uh, including six Asian American women. And I think it's obviously important to mention that it was women in particular that mm-hmm. the shooter, uh, you know, he said that it's that it's a sex addiction issue. It's a religious issue. But Asian Americans also believe that it's a racism issue as well. And I, I, none of these issues are mutually exclusive. And there are people out there saying, well, we can't say that it's about race because he, he didn't say it was about race, which is a ridiculous kind of uh, excuse. So let's say it's all those things, and let's say that all those things are are deeply entwined in the United States, along with this question of toxic masculinity and heterosexuality and guns. Like there are no, there's no other country in the world that does mass shootings like we do. I think we're way, way far ahead, maybe the only country that has these kinds of mass shootings. Mm -hmm. And it is an outcome of our history. It's not an accident that uh, we have a particular kind of masculinity that finds its expression in owning weapons like this. And I think it's rooted in our American mythology of the frontier, of colonization, of this narrative of freedom, which is articulated through the right to own guns. And you know, we should remember that the right to own guns is, is based at least in this, uh, you know, the, the fact that this country was built on armed conquest not just on revolution against the British, uh, but on armed conquest of native peoples, on the enslavement of black peoples, on the uh, forced labor of Asians, on the sexual exploitation of of Asian women, on on American wars in Asia that have been a key part of American history and a reason why a lot of Asian Americans are here. So I think that, uh, you know, to be an American, to me means being able to confront all of this, the complexity of our history. I think there are a lot of Americans who don't want to do that. They want to 
like many people the world over from many different countries, they want to only look at the most celebrated aspects of their nation, of our nation. And I think that's normal. We want to talk about the good things and we should talk about the good things. But for me, complexity means being able to acknowledge what you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald said, the, the test of a first-rate intelligence is to hold two opposing ideas in your mind at the same time. And uh, those two opposing ideas are that we are a country of freedom and democracy, and we're a country built on colonization and genocide and conquest. And, and the eruptions come out in things like mass shootings that affect all of us, but are sometimes directed very particularly at certain populations like, you know, black people in Charleston, Asian American women here, and we need to be able to confront our history if we have any hope of trying to stop this. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that answer. Um, let's now dive into your excellent novels. I would like to talk about both of them since they are part of the same story. First, uh, quickly, do you recommend that your readers start with The Sympathizer? Can The Committed be read as a standalone novel? Well, I, I think it would be the ideal circumstance to read both novels one after the other, but The Committed was written uh, by me with the, the intention that it could be read on its own. So one thing to understand about these two novels is that you know they're both written in genre, so-called genre traditions. Uh, the, the Sympathizer is a spy novel and The Committed is a crime novel. They're both more things than that, but they're, they're at least that. And I, I did that very deliberately because I, I love novels and crime novels and I want to entertain readers and as much as I was I'm entertained by these genres and in these genres you know you can have series and readers can just jump in without having to have read something so you can read number five in the James Bond series without having to have read the first four so hopefully that's that's also true for the committed um, so there's enough of, of you know uh, plot hints and reminders for people who haven't read The Sympathizer so they'll know what's going on. But I also think that the, for me, The Sympathizer and The Committed, besides being genre novels and entertainments, are also part, they add up to a larger project. And I think for those who want to get a grasp of the larger project, it would be nice to read both. And the larger project is talking about you know race and colonialism and war and power, all the things we just I just mentioned in the first response. And that would be, I think, crucial for Americans. I think another thing to say about Americans is that Americans have hangups about the wars that they have fought. And, and, and we're talking about the Vietnam War, you know, Americans think about this war a lot, but in ways that I think are also deeply limited despite the enormous numbers of books and movies that have been made from the American point of view. I think Americans are still very limited in their take on this war, which is why The Sympathizer was written as a way to you know, be, be a, a deep critique of this American limitation. Um, and you know, part of that critique is to say the American war in Vietnam needs to be understood in a much longer history of American warfare in Asia and elsewhere. And the connection to the committed is that, that this is a novel that takes on French colonization. Uh, but you know, the, the American war is connected to this because the Americans came in in, in 1954 in Vietnam and, and basically took over from the French. So the American war in Vietnam is a continuation of what the French were doing. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, sort of building off of your answer here, many people who were not alive during the Vietnam War imagine the war through the lens of media like Apocalypse Now, The Deer Hunter, uh, various X-Men films, Full Metal Jacket, on and on. Maybe in some cases, The Punisher, Tim O'Brien, Michael Hare. Um, part of the sympathizer does take place on a film set, uh, we think, as our unnamed narrator is advising a director on how to portray uh, the Vietnamese in his film. 
How do you think Hollywood has reshaped and propagandized this war in Vietnam? And has your perspective on this changed at all since you moved to Los Angeles or has this only been magnified? There's a line in my nonfiction book, Nothing Ever Dies, Vietnam and the Memory of War. And it begins this way. All wars are fought twice, the first time on the battlefield, the second time in memory. And I think that's exactly what Hollywood has done. Uh, you know, uh, that that uh, as soon as the war was finished, Hollywood started fighting the war again on film, obviously with movies like Apocalypse Now, Platoon, Full Metal Jacket, Rambo, and many, many, many more. And I think that the irony here is that unlike the French, enough easy with what they did during French colonization because we don't have a very strong visual record. Americans left behind a very strong visual record of what they did. And ironically, what they what they say what we see in these movies is that it was a bad war. A lot of these movies depict American soldiers doing terrible things. But the the paradox in that is that at the same time these movies put Americans front and center in their own drama. So I've I've you know met many pe- many people who are not Americans who are opposed or were opposed to the American war in Vietnam call it American imperialism and then they love American pop culture at the same time I mean they can oppose the war and still watch Apocalypse Now without any sense of contradiction that this movie and all these Hollywood movies basically totally erase Vietnamese people so the sympathizer is definitely a satire of that there's a chunk of the novel that's devoted to satirizing movies like what I've just described. And I don't think that Hollywood has learned all that much from, from, from what happened. Uh, so I'll just give you an example. You know, we're, we're trying to adapt The Sympathizer as a TV series. And the initial effort by, by, by a producer who tried to do this was that, you know, she, she went out and tried to market it. And then she came back after several months of frustrating tr- attempts. And she said, you know, and this is about maybe 2017 or so. She said, you know, um, what I'm hearing, she said, is that we can't do this unless we get somebody like Keanu Reeves on board because our narrator is mixed race, part Vietnamese, part French. And it took a moment for that to sink in because I thought, well, the reason why they, they want this is because it's going to cost $50 million to make this TV series and they want a big star. But this was the same time when Narcos was out, which cost $50 million or so a year. And there's nobody famous in that TV series. So for some reason, with this book or with it, with Asian Americans, you have to have Keanu Reeves, which you know, he's a great guy, but that's just their typical Hollywood response on this issue. And I think, um, you know, when when we tried later, a couple of years later to, to go back to Hollywood uh, with, with a different producer this time, met with a bunch of people um, and they were all very nice. And they said, you know, we, we believe in this project and uh, we know we got to get a Vietnamese actor in there. And uh, yes, we'll have the Vietnamese language in the TV series, but I don't know how much of that was just <laughs> the new rhetoric and how much how much of it is real. So we'll see. I'm, I'm still deeply skeptical about Hollywood and its possibilities. Right. Thank you. And as an aside, of course, um, the gentleman who's the main actor in Narcos is now very famous as the Mandalorian. Um, speaking of pop culture, Viet, uh, early on uh, when we meet our sim- our protagonist of the sympathizer, um, the unnamed spy, um, we're told he has a special power or skill, and that is that he can sympathize with both sides of every conflict, uh, your narrator compares this skill or power to a mutant power. My first question for you is as follows. Um, 
the first issue of Marvel's X-Men, which features mutants with different powers, is published in 1963, uh, shortly before the halfway point of the Vietnam War. Where in time is the narrator when he is writing this? How would he have familiarized himself with mutants and their powers? And how familiar would his audience uh, say his quote-unquote aunt in Paris, France, who's reading this confession, be with mutants? Well, let me say, I think he would be... Uh, he would be. He wrote these these two books. The conceit is that he wrote these books as confessions. Mm-hmm. So the sympathizer would have been written, uh, you know, around 1980 or so, and, and the and the and the committed would have been written around 80, 84, 83, 84, 1983, 1984. And the you know the the lines from a literary point of view are allusions to um, Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison mm-hmm. and Frankenstein and. Um, I think an invisible man, if I remember right, I mean, there is language about mute, uh, mutants or monsters. I, I don't really recall exactly. But for me, as the writer, as the novelist, that was what I was thinking about. And I think you're right that, um, you know, the idea of the X-Men as mutants was there because I grew up watch, reading those early X-Men um, comic books. And of course, much has been made about the idea of the mutant as a you know variation of the alien and the immigrant and, and, all, and the outsider and all that. So I think for my narrator, you know, for him, uh, he is just part of the conceit again, is that he is fully steeped in Western culture. Uh, He actually came to the United States in uh, the 1960s. He spent six years in Southern California at Occidental College, getting his bachelor's degree and master's degree in American studies. So I don't think it would have been out, out of the realm of possibility that at least he might have heard of the X-Men, for example, as you said, it was 1963 when that series came out. But also, you know, part of American pop culture in the 50s and 60s were movies about mutants and and monsters and and all of that, these kinds of B-movie types of things that were just there as as a part of popular culture. So that even I, as a kid, growing up in the 70s and 80s, knew about these things because they were on TV, you know, black and white TV and all that, all that kind of thing. So Hopefully it's realistic that, that the pop cultural dimensions of, Amer- again, of American pop culture, which is global and powerful, would be affecting people from all uh, walks of life in all parts of the world. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Viet. I would like to read a quote from early on in The Committed that really brings us full circle for this segment, back to Georgia in a way. And that quote is, as for America, just think of Coca-Cola. That elixir is really something embodying, as it does, the addictive, teeth-decaying sweetness of a capitalism that was no good for you, no matter how it fizzled on the tongue. End quote. I'm hoping you can elaborate on this quote for us, Viet. How to our narrator is America like Coca-Cola? And what is our narrator's overall views on capitalism? Yeah, I think uh, there are many kinds of commodity objects you could pick to symbolize the United States. I think Coca-Cola is one because I think it's a global symbol. Uh, I just recently rewatched uh, Peter Davis's Oscar-winning documentary from 1974, Hearts and Minds, and there's one part of it that features a Vietnamese uh, capitalist and cabinet minister who's talking about the various ways that he thinks capitalism can be can remake South Vietnam. And, and one of the things that he talks about is Coca-Cola, that there's a Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola bottling plant in South Vietnam. And Coca-Cola does come to symbolize for many people around the world, the United States. You know, this is what 
Americans export. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of commodity you can't find elsewhere, at least earlier in 20th century history. And yet, you know, it tastes great. Uh, it's also terrible for you at the same time. And I think that's, a, that's, that's, that's true for a lot of American commodity objects that come, have come to symbolize the United States, like the McDonald's hamburger, which is the same kind of thing. Tastes great, but it may not be so, so, so great for you. The, uh, you know, the, the sympathizer has very um, strong critique of American capitalism because he is an outsider to it and he's a communist. So he's going to be able to see things about capitalism that people who are inside capitalism may not be able to see. And I think communism, whether you agree with it or not, or whether you think it's a you know, possibility as a, as a political and economic system, does have a have have, a, have a, does have an insightful critique of of the negative aspects of capitalism, about its alienation, about its exploitation um, of people and of their time and of their their their, their consciences, um, and that's what we see being done in these two books. But hopefully, in a way that's kind of funny at the same time. So we haven't talked about that part, but I hope these books are funny, in addition to all the politics and and everything else that's going on, uh, because I think one of the the ways to to be critical is to be satirical. And that's what these novels set out to do. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Viet. Listeners, we're going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor. Then I will be right back with Viet Tan Nguyen. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin' can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin', B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Viet Tan Nguyen, author of The Committed, which is published by our friends at Grove Press. Viet, in this novel, The Committed, our narrator becomes a drug dealer in Paris, France, and he starts selling hashish to his aunt's high-profile friends. Um, You spoke of humor before the break, and this is a funny moment to me, and this is another two-part What is the difference between marijuana and hashish? And do you, like our narrator, think that the Grateful Dead should be lined up and shot for popularizing tie-dyed t-shirts? Well, I I wouldn't go as far as to actually shoot the Grateful Dead, but I I do think that the tie-dyed t-shirt is a really regrettable part of uh, fashion history. And I say that as someone who went to school at UC Berkeley, where, you know, you could buy tie-dyed t-shirts all over the place. Um, So, you know, People should do what they want, but I, I think it's a mistake to to wear that. Uh, as for marijuana and hashish, I don't know the technical differences between the two. Um, I I know that marijuana, you know, you you it, it's green and and you you can you can crumble it and roll it and all that. And the hashish that I've 
theme in Europe and especially in Paris comes in sticky brown sticks. I don't know that what the, the 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 difference is between how these things are how these things are made and you know marijuana you can just smoke it whole whereas hashish what I've seen is people crumble it into their tobacco and smoke it. So you know but I you know I put I put that in there because um it's it's part of the fun of the of the committed that he he beca- he starts to use his own supply, but he's also selling this to, as you said, the the upper class, the intellectual elite, and the left wing uh, of Paris, uh, because I certainly saw that happening. And um, you know, part of part of the, the the issue of writing a crime novel about drugs is that you get to touch on hypocrisy. You know that the the elites use drugs all the time, of very different kinds of drugs and all that. And and it's if it's not socially acceptable, at least it's not punished uh, for the most part. Whereas the working class, the lower class, um, the non-powerful people of color, immigrants, refugees, they may be using the same drugs or different drugs, but these are the ones that get you know deeply criminalized and racialized and targeted. And any good crime novel, I think, were the ones that I like to read. Are, are very clear in pointing out that individual crimes, as scary as they might be, are, are nothing compared to social, you know, social society-wide crimes. Um, and so part of the history that the, the committed touches on is the fact that the French who colonized Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos financed their empire partly through drugs, through encouraging the growth of opium in Laos and then, you know, forcing the Southeast Asian people to buy the opium and smoke it. <laughs> so it's like a state-run monopoly, drug monopoly. This is, they, you know, the French and the British were the first drug runners. So that's tragic and painful, but it's also, uh, as, as a matter of hypocrisy, kind of funny uh, with enough distance and time. And, and so that's where the drug dealing uh, comes in. Absolutely. Thank you. And I lived in San Francisco for many years and spent a lot of time on Berkeley's campus. Definitely a lot of uh, tie-dyed t-shirts. One of my first experiences when I moved um, to San Francisco was meeting Phil Lesh and Jill Lesh at a birthday party. Um, A lot of Grateful Dead fans out there as well. Viet, our narrator says that re-education taught him that dedicated communists are like dedicated capitalists, incapable of nuance. Do you, like our narrator, think that these philosophies necessitate that belief in them leads to extremism? And can you elaborate on our narrator's thought here? Well, I think all ideologies have a spectrum, you know, that uh, uh, not everybody who follows a certain ideology is going to be rigid and absolutist, but the potential exists and it doesn't matter what ideology you pick. You know, so the, the two you named were capitalism and communism. I think I also deal a lot with Catholicism in these books as well. And you have your Catholic fanatics and absolutists as well. And if you look at the history of Catholicism, there, there have been moments where the Catholic Church has done horrifying things in the name of God and religion and the, and the, and the church. So I think these books are, are concerned with how ideology uh, can get carried away, can get taken to its extreme. Um, and maybe, you know, if we live in the West in a democratic capitalist society, this doesn't seem possible anymore, but, you know, the French and the American revolutions were born out of, you know, violent moments and, uh, you know, a lot of people paid the price in France and in the United States, you know, I think a lot of people paid the price too, except that we don't really commemorate what happened to the Tories, for example, um, even though they were a substantial part of the American population. 
So the novels are concerned with the power and the seduction of ideologies. And then what happens when people take these ideologies uh, and won't, won't compromise, become extremists and absolutists. And our narrator, as you mentioned earlier, is a man of two faces and two minds. He believes in communism, but he's also you know, empathetic to other possibilities. So he sees some of the possibilities and the pleasures of capitalism and democracy as well. And that makes him, I think, hopefully an interesting person, but also a tragic one because he's gonna be caught in the middle between these binaries. And during times of conflict, like the Cold War, so-called Cold War, being in the middle is not a good place to be. You know, it may be a little bit safer to be aligned with one of the two sides. Um, and he tries to make that gesture, but he's going to be run over in the middle, as so many people, so many people are. So part of the tragedy of, the, of these novels is to, to examine how it's the extremists who oftentimes win and the people who are sympathetic with these revolutionary causes are forced to go along um, and sometimes pay the price. Thank you, Viet. Um our narrator's quote-unquote aunt says that colonization is pedophilia. Can you explain her perspective here? I think that there is, I mean, colonization is a political, a military, and economic mode of domination that is violent and which masks its, its violence through rhetoric. So no one, at least in the West, goes to another country and colonizes it and says, we're doing it just because we like it and because we want to take their resources. They will say, we're doing it for the, the good of those people and it's to civilize them. And this is our God-given right to do it. This is all the various kinds of rhetoric the French and the British and the Americans among many nations have done. But the, the actual practice is brutal and violent and often sexually rapacious as well. Um, so, you know, you can't really look at any history of colonization without looking also at sexual exploitation, which is why the shootings in Atlanta targeting Asian American women, I think, are a manifestation of how you cannot extricate sexual desire and exploitation from all these other modes of, of power. So when the aunt says colonization is pedophilia, she's alluding to this, this narrative that colonization should be understood as rape, metaphorically a rape of a, one country by another, but also that colonization is often carried out with rape as well, um, both heterosexual and, and uh, homosexual rape. Uh, but pedophilia specifically, because the narrative of justification that Europeans and Americans have done with colonization is to say that Europeans, Americans, and white people in general are the mature people. They're the adults in the room. And the colonized are, are, are infantile, they're children. So if you look at the American cartoons of the turn of the century, early 1900s, when the United States was acquiring the Philippines, Guam, Puerto Rico, Hawaii, Cuba, the, the cartoons literally depict these countries as being little brown children being taught by a avuncular Uncle Sam. So it's not just rape, it's pedophilia if we use this narrative that the colonizers themselves put forth about their superiority to these little brown children that they were uh, taking uh, under, their own, under their guidance for their own good. Thank you for that answer, Viet. One character we have not talked about yet is our narrator, our narrator's friend, Bon. Um, when our narrator and his best friend, Bon, were young, they cut their hands and then shook their hands, swearing a blood oath to one another. 
Why is this action taken when both of these characters were much younger, taken so seriously later in their life? And is it a pact that our narrator uses to take advantage of his friend? So they're they're blood brothers. Um, and I grew up in you know Vietnamese American community of refugees and where I could see that you know the, the relationships of of men to each other, of boys to each other was was very important. Um, and in some ways actually if, if they were if they were heterosexual, perhaps more more important or at least just as important as their relationships with their wives and their girlfriends, you know that you know that it was a common sight to see pool halls and cafes that only had Vietnamese men in them. Um, they would go to hang out with their brothers. Uh, with, you know, and smoke and drink and shoot pool or, or drink coffee and, and all, almost always with the exclusion of, of women. And I also grew up with the sense that these brotherhoods were very romantic. Um, they weren't necessarily gay. They may, maybe they were, I have no idea, but they were at least homosocial and romantic in that sense that uh, these men and boys were very loyal to each other, saw themselves as very loyal to each other and would die for each other. It was part of the rhetoric, you know, and I don't know if they actually ever swore blood oaths, but the blood oath is, I think, a part of uh, East Asian, Southeast Asian culture. You know, you see it in Chinese mythologies and, and romantic outlaw stories and things like that. Uh, I was also influenced by John Woo movies, which I also think pick up on this, this tradition as well. They don't swear blood oaths either, but they do have these really strong brotherhood ties where the brothers would die for each other, even if they're not actual brothers. And so that's what the, the books are, are, are alluding to, that these young men who meet, who meet each other in a French lycée or high school at 14 years of age, feel themselves to be outsiders, make a pact with each other um, and commit to each other. Um, that's part of their romance, um, part of their deep love and friendship for each other. So I hope that's realistic. And do, does our narrator exploit that, that relationship um, I don't know. I mean, I think he, this is one, one relationship where I think he's, he has two kinds of pure relationships in these books. One is with his mother who's already passed away. So she's very prominent in his, in his memory as, as a pure, pure person. And the other pure relationship is with his blood brothers in terms of their loyalty to each other. But the tragedy of these books is that two of the three blood brothers, our narrator and, and, and man, his handler are secretly communists, Bon is an anti-communist, fervent anti-communist, but he doesn't know his two other blood brothers are actually communists. So the relationship though is impure in that way, but pure in the sense that our narrator would, will, will literally do anything to try to spare Bond from this knowledge and also to save Bond from death at the hands of his communist enemies. And hopefully that gives some dramatic energy to these two books. Absolutely, thank you so much Viet. And finally, uh, to come back full circle to capitalism and the American way of life, the French way of life as well, uh, a character who we meet as the Maoist PhD says, capitalism has to win globally and become the worst version of itself before communism can subvert it, uh, end quote. In the mind of this Maoist PhD, Viet, what do you think is this worst version, this extreme version of capitalism? What does it look like? I think it's a pretty straight um, Marxist line that, that you know, uh, capitalism has to succeed globally and to create the conditions of economic wealth 
that would be necessary to sustain the entire world. But the problem is that capitalism, capitalism isn't interested in supporting the world with its wealth. I mean, it's driven by an ideology of self-interest where winner takes all, um, which means that some people get most of the wealth and most people don't get any of the wealth. And I think that's that's the, the logical outcome of capitalism from the, the Marxist perspective. And so what that means, and we're, I think, heading in that direction. And when we see that a handful of people, the you know, mega billionaires, for example, control more of the wealth than 50 or 60 percent of the world, that we are in a situation where capitalism has generated enormous wealth, arguably enough wealth to feed everybody on the planet. But nevertheless, we have people who are starving uh, while some people are have enormous and are arguably obscene amounts of wealth. Uh, what happens in this situation is that part of the logic of capitalism is that it wants to extract as much uh, labor out of your average worker and pay that worker the least that it can in order to maximize profit. That's the logic of capitalism and companies and corporations and capitalists are designed to compete with each other to keep on accelerating this particular kind of exploitative logic. So how far can you take it? How far can you exploit people and not pay them and, 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 and yet not have them angry enough to revolt? That's what, that's what communism is based on that at a certain point, the masses of these of these exploited peoples will have had enough and they're going to revolt. Now, the history of communism has been that, you know, the communist countries have believed that you have to go international on this revolution. Um, but most of these, all of these re communist revolutions have been nationally based. That's where they've started. That's what happened in Vietnam, China, the Soviet Union, and so on. So, the future for communism is still this belief that you, you're going to have to have an international revolution where people are not going to be separated by borders. Exploited peoples in one country will see their relationships to exploited peoples in another country. Are, these relationships are more important than the national ties that would bond Americans to somebody like Elon Musk, for example. So there's a long way to go before you get to that to get to that moment. And I think that, um, you know, the I think the narratives that the Vietnamese Communist Party and the Chinese Communist Party put forth are that their versions of capitalism are better. I mean, it is capitalism. I don't think they pretend that it's not, but these are, these are communist run capitalist societies and that the future is that they're building towards this socialist future once the economic wealth has been created. Now, whether that whether or not that actually is going to happen, I have no idea, and I'm deeply skeptical that state-run capitalist societies are actually going to get to the point where they are going to somehow give up their power to the people, but that's that's the logic, that's the narrative that's put forth. Absolutely. Thank you for that answer, Viet, and thank you for writing these books. These are, these are two of the best books I've read in a very long time, and I'm very thankful that you took the time to speak with me today so that I could take the time to read them. Listeners, I've been speaking with Viet Tan Nguyen, author of The Committed, which is published by our friends at Grove Press. Viet, thank you so much for joining me. Jason, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Once again, I would like to thank Viet Tan Nguyen for joining me. Copies of The Committed can be purchased at www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKEN, that's B-O-O. -O. 
K-I-N in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Booking.